Welcome to The Open Source Economist, a podcast about the new economy of free software powering our lives. Brought to you by Christy Chirinos, product manager and entrepreneur. To kick off this new podcast, I'm going to tell you a story that's probably going to make you feel kind of old. My name is Chrissy Chirinas, and I'm your host for the Open Source Economist podcast. I'm a product manager, entrepreneur, and I'm very interested in exploring the ways that open source software is changing the way that the world works. But not that long ago, I was 11 years old, and I discovered the BMG Music Club. You remember the one, you buy one CD, you get 11 free. They send you a CD, you have to refuse it every month, and you get a bunch of free ones. I was in middle school, so I had the time to keep track of this chore. By this point, I loved music, and so it was totally worth it. I love Led Zeppelin as much as I love Christina Aguilera. I couldn't get enough. Lucky for me, this was also around the time that file sharing was everywhere. I was a little too young to see Napster rise and go down in flames. I told you it would make you feel old. But I did run out of free CDs from BMG Music Club right in time to start downloading my own MP3s from Kazaa and start burning CDs for boys I had a crush on. Now, if you're listening and you're younger than me, you don't remember this era because you were born into what came shortly, which was iTunes. You could buy a song for 99 cents and the convenience factor made it better than getting it for free iTunes gave us centralization, which works great because it's easier, convenient, and safer. Before that, you had file sharing, which was this sort of marketplace, and you could share those files and download files that belong to other people, so you could get movies, books, porn, and of course, music. So I graduated away from that BMG Music Club. Why would I pay a penny and 30 minutes of this sixth grader's valuable time if I could get that music for free? Now, this was obviously hugely controversial and still is. Copyrights are being flouted. People were losing money. I found some research from 2006 published by Dr. Alejandro Sentner from the University of Texas at Dallas in the Journal of Law and Economics. He outlined a $5 billion drop in global music sales between 1994 and 2003. In not nerd terms, everyone was freaking out. Now, many artists went to bat to make sure they were getting paid their royalties. Some felt pretty differently, though. The thing about music is that music should be available to anybody that wants to hear it. Dave Grohl, the drummer from Nirvana and the founder of the Foo Fighters. That there should be no such thing as a price tag on music. Okay, maybe there's a price tag on the package that you buy. You know, you pay $13 for a CD, you get the artwork, you get the jewel box, you get the friggin' sticker, you get the whole nine, whatever. But I don't want to turn on my fucking radio and have to put a nickel in it to hear Metallica. I can understand why some people say Napster is taking money away from me. But you know what? When it's someone that has sold 50 million copies and made 50 million fucking dollars and then he bitches about nickels, go fuck yourself, man. So... Not everybody in the industry thought it was bad. Some saw an opportunity, but they weren't quite sure how to define it. A much larger group of people were very unhappy, though. 
And what they started to do was they leveraged one of the most powerful and quite honestly, one of the few tools that was left, the legal system. You're probably familiar with this story, but the truth is this exact dynamic is playing out all over our digital world. In this episode and really the rest of this podcast, we're asking important questions. What made this possible and how is it changing the world? By examining the past and dreaming about the future, it started to make more and more sense to start this discussion by talking to some lawyers. Yeah, sure. So my name is David Orozco. I am the Bank of America Associate Professor of Business Administration at Florida State University's College of Business. I am a lawyer by training, uh, went to Northwestern Law School, did my undergrad in econ and finance at NYU. I'm from San Diego originally. I have written, published several you know, articles. I wrote a textbook uh, called Business Launch Strategy, published by McGraw-Hill. And um, yeah, I love teaching classes. I teach law to non-lawyers. The rumors are true. I was Dr. Orozco's student, which is why I can't stop saying Dr. Orozco. Now, so the thing about open source is that it, it's, it's evolved, right? It's become a lot more mature. Now it's more diverse. I think initially it was, you know, developers who were just sick and tired of having to deal with companies asserting their rights or stopping them. And they wanted to code and they wanted to build stuff. So I think this was very community-based when it started. And it wasn't really based on profit so much. It was just like, we want to we code, right? And, and we develop stuff. In our modern lives, we've gotten used to the following paradigm. We have money, which we exchange for the things and the services that we need. And then if we have any leftover, the ones that we want. And we have a limited amount of money, so we have to figure out how to spend that money well. This is the basic economic concept of scarcity. And we consider it the driving force behind why we're always thinking about how to spend smart and earn more. We're constantly solving problems that essentially boil down to managing scarcity. Seems pretty simple and fairly universal. Or is it? Let's go back to music. On-demand music was a scarce resource for a pretty long time. I live in Austin, Texas, and people here are really into vinyl collecting. But when vinyl was our only option, you were limited in the quantity of music that you could consume. You weren't just limited by money, too. You also would have what we would call other limiting factors. For example, how much room do you have for storing those vinyls? Or do you even have a record player? This is still true as we move through other music technology, cassettes, CDs, the other many weird mediums that we forgot at this point because they never took off. One of my favorite BMG Music Club CDs was Christina Aguilera's 2002 smash hit, Stripped. And only I could play it on demand. If someone else wanted to play it, they would have to borrow it. And then while they had my Stripped CD, I couldn't play it. This item, or good in economist terms, also potentially had an expiration date. What if I scratched it? We talk a lot about technology disrupting the world, and personally, when I think about disruption, I tend to think about it in terms of the scales of supply and demand being severely altered. When it came to music, that alteration was radical. We essentially eliminated scarcity. 
When I ripped, that's copied the songs off the CD for those of you who are younger than me, the songs from Christina Aguilera's album onto my laptop, I could share those files with someone else. And now we would both have access to on-demand music at the same time. This wouldn't really cost us anything in any significant way. You could argue electricity, but at this particular scale, those costs were negligible. Suddenly, the basic economic problem of scarcity doesn't seem that basic. Like we said, a lot of people were losing a lot of money around this time. Those people, the people that we would call the suppliers in economics terms, tried a lot of things to figure out how to continue to exist and make money in a market where they were selling wares that were no longer scarce. They tried restrictions on file sharing. They tried distributing files that couldn't be played by anyone other than the original owner. And for the most part, these restrictions didn't do very well. What they were attempting to create is what economists call artificial scarcity. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's scarcity that isn't really there. We've taken something that is scarce and attempted to make it so, so that we can figure out how to sell it. Here's why economists don't like that. We're doing extra work to create something and then sell it. It's inefficient. We would laugh at a lot of versions of this. Think trying to sell air or sunlight or easily downloadable MP3s. But there are other instances in which artificial scarcity doesn't really send up any flags for us. Think bottled water or you know where this is going, software. And there are reasons that have to do with value created for that. And so that's where the open source movement was born. Here's Dr. Roscoe again. And I think the community aspect of it um, was really the driving force and not the money aspect. Later, what happened was people realized that they could make some money off of open source. We can, we can monetize it, to use that language, monetize open source, or incorporate it into a business model, right? A business model. Around the 1970s, many of the pioneers of what is now the open source movement worked for big technology giants on proprietary software. And they realized that their labor wasn't just going into creating software. Their labor was also going into the creation of artificial scarcity. That's pretty frustrating. And it's also a well-documented economic problem. That's the term of economic inefficiency. It's also known as a market failure. And all that it does is it outlines a place where the free market fails. Economics is full of these examples. We don't like them because they create waste and they make things more expensive for people. But... We're also not little robots. They're also just kind of annoying. So open source software basically asked this question. Instead of creating artificial scarcity, what if we just don't? Open source software, uh, from a definitional standpoint, I'm going to take a stab at it and say that it's basically software where whoever created the software, the creator, the coder, um, doesn't want to resort to the default rules of intellectual property or copyright law in particular under the U.S. system, which is a default system of all rights reserved. Some of you, you know, you may have heard 
copyright all rights reserved. There's a lot of meaning in that, a lot of history in that. You know, we can go into that if you want, but basically the 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 default rule set from the very beginning is that whoever writes something or creates something like code gets all the rights with copyright. And, you know, somebody who creates code gets the copyright. Well, you know, the way code works is people want to see the code. They want to tinker with it. They want to expand on it, build on it, develop, build a community. And the all rights reserved default paradigm, if you want to call it that, it doesn't, isn't designed for that. It basically set, puts a big stop sign that says, hey, you better get permission first or clearance first or pay a royalty. At the core of this radical rebellion was something pretty unglamorous, a terms of use. You know, those licenses that you accept and you never read, that right there is the core of a defiance of artificial scarcity. So people started to learn to code more. And all of a sudden they were hitting these walls of, uh-oh, lawyers are contacting us, we're going to court or whatever, we're getting threatened. So how do we get around that? Well, leave it to some engineers to figure out uh, an engineering solution to that legal problem. We are going to basically take away the all rights reserved, you know, starting point. And through a contract, because if you download this software or if you start using it, you first have to agree through contract now that you're not going to treat this as a property right. I'm not. I'm the creator, and I'm not treating it as a property right. So I'm going to basically transfer those sets of instructions through this legal mechanism, a contract, a license, to anybody else, the community that wants to develop it. I was curious. So, of course, I asked Dr. Roscoe. If all of this comes down to a classic legal contract, what happens if the contract's violated? Well, you, you, the thing about contracts, and this is a great, great question. The thing about contracts is you always have to read the terms. It's not a subjective analysis. It's not what I wish analysis. It's, it's what did we agree to do? What was the meeting of our minds? Because that's at the core of contract law is having a meeting of the minds. You got to read the terms. What did both parties agree? What did they promise each other, right? So I decided to read the terms of some of the most popular open source licenses. We have two broad categories. They are the permissive licenses and the copyleft licenses. The permissive licenses essentially let us do anything we'd like. The most common open source license is the MIT license, and it is broadly free. But as we'll talk about, it's not free as in free beer, it's more free as in free puppy. The second most common permissive license is the Apache License 2.0, which also lets you do whatever, but you must include the original copyright and license notice and state significant changes and include the notice file if there is one. The Berkeley Software Distribution License, or the BSD, also says do whatever, it's a permissive license, but do include the copyright and license notices. Now, the more restrictive open source licenses are our copyleft licenses. That is obviously a very punny approach to the word copyright. The most common copyleft license is the GNU General Public License, or GPL. And if you use a GPL component, then whatever you produce with it must also be GPL. The goal is the prevention of more proprietary software. If you use something that's open source, 
we don't want you to turn around down the road and make it proprietary. The other copyleft license that we commonly see is the Mozilla Public License 2.0 or the MPL. And it kind of sits in the middle. It asks you to include the original software, but otherwise allows, generally speaking, broad use. To really understand the open source software ecosystem, we have to start not with a technology discussion, not with a business discussion, but a legal discussion. All the developers I know will immediately define open source for you as a how and what you can do with it. But when it comes to open source and economics, we need to think about the impact it has on business. Developers are creating contracts. What does that mean? Explain it like you're explaining it to children. How could a developer just come up with a contract? What are the actual mechanics of saying, actually, forget that default thing that the entire world is doing. Here's the law that I want to exist under. How, How does that work? The way it works is you get beat up, right? You get harassed or you get threatened or you get sued. And that's where big companies come into play. The ones that really benefit from the um, operate in under the all rights reserved model. And they make money doing that. So think the way I would explain it to somebody at that level would be to say, hey, if you're a movie studio and you spend a ton of money, you know, creating a movie and hiring all these great actors and everything, you're going to try to make money off of that, right? Or else you'll go bankrupt. Are you going to let people rip off your movie and just copy it online and just distribute it? Probably not because you're not going to make your money back. Mm -hmm. Same thing with software back in the day. It was all built in-house under one roof, you know, and they wanted to control the aspects of that software. It was a threat to some some company's business, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how it kind of, I think, started was, um, you know, there were there were fights, there were battles. It wasn't a pretty process. It wasn't clean, it wasn't neat. There was a lot of animosity and a lot of liability, right? When it comes to discussions of digital-related artificial scarcity, ultimately, it's going to come down to the legal system to figure out how we move forward. Companies and individuals that have succeeded at ending up on the right side of this discussion often find themselves doing pretty well. I asked Dr. Roscoe what we could learn from them. Well, I mean, listen, if, if from a very high level, you can learn a lot, right? Which is the idea that contracts matter a ton. Relational contracts are the ones that matter a lot, right? How do you design terms in your contract that create this relational perspective that builds trust over time, that builds cooperation, reciprocity, flexibility, This is the process of incorporating the law into a successful and proactive business model. When it comes to music, you know how the story ends. First, Apple comes in and sells you songs via iTunes for a dollar, but then we move into the streaming era. At its core, the streaming era did a very similar thing. They gathered together the suppliers, the creators of music, and the customers, the listeners of music, into a new transformative legal strategy. That's a concept I learned in Dr. Orozco's class, and it's a key component of running a successful business. You know, one of the things that I do in my teaching and in my writing and speaking is to talk about how to manage these scenarios. And this is a great example of a scenario where people, because of the way they had to learn and fight, 
said, all right, fine. You know what? We're going to come up with a completely different system and paradigm and manage the scenario. And mm-hmm. contracts are at the core of open source, right? right? Think about it. You can't have open source unless you have that flexibility of contracts. Since scarcity in music didn't really exist anymore, we found other ways to provide value. The value became convenience, easily created customized playlists, discovery engines, and more. Now the larger world of open source software, especially the open source software that goes from business to business, is going to be looking at a similar situation. A streaming service hits all the main buckets of transformative legal strategy. It complies with things like copyright laws and distribution laws. It leverages the laws that we have, for example, paying out royalties to musicians and music companies. And also it makes the music available for the customers in a way that the customer is pretty happy to pay for a subscription for. Now, that's not without controversy either. There are definitely a lot of conversations about whether musicians are making enough money for their work and whether the streaming companies should be making some more of that profit available to the suppliers and the creators. The controversy never really ends. If it did, I don't think this podcast would exist. When it comes to the examination of open source software, it's important for us to learn about these terms and keep the knowledge of the licenses in mind. Things are still changing, and when it comes to software that businesses use and that businesses to businesses sell, we're going to have to answer a lot of these questions. How do we make this profitable for everybody involved? How do we create structures of value and advertising that defy the previous ways that we distributed software? Things are still changing, and sharing resources and eliminating waste is going to speed up that process. All inventions have happened on top of other inventions. And now access to other people's software innovations is just a click away. So inventions are going to happen fast. We can no longer think of open source software as just how developers use the code. They're also legal items and they're also business strategists. I'd love to hear what you think. And of course, don't forget to check out Dr. Orozco's work. If the people who listen to this want to get in touch with you, where can they go? Sure. So they, you know, I'm on Twitter. So professor Orozco uh, is my, is my, uh, my account. I'm also on LinkedIn. So look me up on LinkedIn. I'm also on YouTube. Look me up on YouTube. Yeah. So those are some really good ways to stay connected. Thank you for listening. Learn how to support the open source economist at opensourceeconomist.com. Even a monthly $5 contribution helps and gets you access to full, unedited interviews with our guests. This podcast was edited by Ali Nimmons. Thank you to Alice Young for creating our designs, and to Chris Lemma for supporting our publishing costs. And of course, thank you to our individual contributors for helping us create this podcast. Have questions or feedback? Send them to email at christychirinos.com.